of those passages that we're going to look at this morning a little shorter gives us a little bit of time and space to, to go back a bit. Uh, if you've perhaps seen in some of your favorite TV series, some, some of those where you'll get a flashback or two and it's meant to, to help you see something in the present. And we get a little bit of something of, of that this morning because I, I want to I take us back a bit. We're, we've worked our way through now almost 20 chapters of Scripture. By the time uh, we're all said and done this morning, we'll be into chapter 21. And what I want us to see right out of the gate this morning, and we, we've seen it before. This is not the first time you will have heard me say that if this isn't your first Sunday, that Luke's gospel account is filled from start to finish with intentional displays of comparison and contrast, which, again, we, we've seen from the very beginning, from chapter 1. As this book opens with a couple of birth announcements, right? Two stories laid out side by side for comparison and contrast. The foretelling of the the birth of John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord. Followed by the foretelling of the birth of Jesus, Christ the Lord himself. Two announcements, two pregnancies, two songs of praise. And and yet the two stories couldn't be more different. The comparison uh, itself meant to show the contrast for what it is. Followed soon after in chapter 1 with the contrasting responses of Zechariah and, and Mary. The former silenced in the wake of his own unbelief. The latter so overwhelmed by God's goodness, glory, and grace that she can't help but sing. And then you have the, the contrasting birth stories themselves of John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth. The birth of John taking up a whopping two verses The birth of Jesus taking up three full paragraphs because the story of Christmas is not ultimately about John, but rather Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Luke then tells us of Jesus' ministry in Galilee as he continues to present us with intentional displays of comparison and contrast. In Jesus' healing of the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, for example, chapter 6, we saw the mercilessness of the Pharisees in their cold, calculated legalism contrasted with Jesus as the embodiment of mercy, having taken on flesh in order to bring relief where there would otherwise be no mercy, only misery. We were presented in the Sermon on the Plain, chapter 6, with something of a contrast between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, or excuse me, the kingdom of this world. The path that, that leads to life versus the path that leads to destruction. The house built on rock versus the house built on sand. And then there were the two vastly different responses to Jesus, which we saw in the home of Simon the Pharisee, chapter 7. One of the clearest contrasts in all of the book of Luke. A story involving the the inconsiderate contempt of a self-righteous man and the extravagant love of a forgiven sinner. Two very different understandings of sin and grace. Simon having invited Jesus into his home, yet having failed to treat Jesus with love and respect, perceiving that it was the woman of the city who had missed it, when in fact it was Simon, the loveless one. The woman having exceeded Simon in every way, wetting Jesus' feet with her tears of of gratitude, kissing and anointing Jesus' feet in servant-hearted humility. And let's not forget the story, one of my favorites, of the Gerasene demoniac, chapter 8, where we saw the response of the people in the surrounding country in stark contrast with that of the man having just been healed. The crowd asking Jesus to leave, perhaps some of them uh, a fear associated with material loss, prioritizing their, their precious pigs over the precious Son of God. The once demon-possessed man, in contrast, clinging to Jesus and begging to be with him. 
like the forgiven woman in the house of Simon at the feet of her redeemer. And then there was the, the parable of the master and his servants. Chapter 12, the faithful servants in the parable uh, depicted as uh, expectantly ready and waiting for the master's return. Prepared to open the door immediately upon hearing his knock. Even if that knock should come in the second or third watch of the night when the rest of the world is sleeping. Rewarded, Jesus tells us there, for their readiness with a feast of their own. Seated around the master's table. In contrast with the unfaithful servant in the parable, the one who lives as though this is all there is, like the man with his bigger barns, self-focused and delusional, believing himself to be secure, having established enough in the storehouse to eat, drink, and, and be merry for years to come, all the while failing to consider that he might not live to see tomorrow, that his very soul might be demanded that night. And speaking of Parables, one could hardly forget the contrasting responses of the two sons, the two brothers in the parable of the prodigal, chapter 15, where it was the younger brother having returned home who stood forgiven inside his father's house in joyful celebration while the older brother stood on the outside looking in, filled with self-righteous anger. That story, you may recall, told amidst a crowd of younger brothers, sinners and tax collectors, as well as older brothers, uh, scribes and Pharisees. The tax collectors and sinners having drawn near to hear Jesus while the, the religious elite stood at a distance, just like the older brother at the end of that parable. Convinced of their own self-righteousness, angry at Jesus for offering God's kingdom to all the wrong people. Suspicious of joy on the outside looking in. And how could we forget the vivid imagery of Jesus' telling of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, chapter 16? A story of great reversal as it was the poor man in that parable who was taken into the presence of God, given a seat at the place of honor, Abraham's side. Not because the man was poor, but because he trusted God and God's word. In contrast with the, the rich man who found himself in the parable in the eternal unquenchable valley of Hinnom, the place of perpetual burning. Not only the story of two vastly different lives lived, but two very different destinies. And then there's the contrasting pictures with which Luke presented us not too far back in chapter 18. We saw a few of them there. The first being uh, Jesus' story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, both of whom went to the temple to pray. The one trusting in himself that he was righteous, treating others with contempt. The other having come to the end of himself, crying out to God in humble contrition, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus there declaring that it was the, the self-righteous Pharisee whose prayers went unheard, blinded by his own self-sufficiency and pride, while the sinful tax collector left the temple justified before God in self-abandoning, humble recognition of his desperate need for God's mercy and forgiveness. Another example in Luke chapter 18 being the, the way he presents us with the story of the children being brought to Jesus followed by the story of the rich young ruler. Children most clearly showing us what it is to receive and enter Jesus' kingdom in their helplessness and humility, their complete dependence and wholehearted trust. In contrast with the rich young ruler, a man with no sense of helplessness, self-confident in his religious devotion, self-reliant in his wealth and possessions. And lastly, though I'm certain that I've missed several examples, there's the story of Zacchaeus, which comes right after the story of the blind beggar 
giving us expressions of Jesus saving both the, the destitute, impoverished, and the corrupt wealthy. Both men wanting to see Jesus, both men in need of something that money just can't buy. Luke's gospel account, it's filled with intentional displays of comparison and contrast. Each and every example compiled that we might have certainty, going back to chapter 1, verse 4, regarding the Son of Man who came to seek and save the lost. A certainty of faith that we must profess for ourselves. And more than that, that we might follow Jesus as our Lord and God, that we might leave our nets, so to speak, as an outworking of the sure knowledge of who he is. That we would stand alongside Mary, alongside the sinful woman forgiven. That we would stand alongside the garrison demoniac and the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal. That we would stand alongside the tax collector and the blind beggar, both of whom cried out to Jesus for mercy. Or in the case of this morning's passage, that we might stand alongside the impoverished widow whom Luke presents in stark contrast with the scribes. If you pick up the story in verse 45 of chapter 20, Luke tells us, And in the hearing of all the people, he, Jesus, said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Throughout Luke's gospel account, you see it in all the gospel accounts, we see Jesus receive poor in spirit sinners having come to the end of themselves over and over again while making those satisfied with their spiritual state and reputation incredibly uncomfortable. The Gospels are some of the most dangerous books of the Bible to sit under in the American South. In the words of one scholar, most churches would not tolerate the kinds of things that Jesus said about religious people. You may recall Jesus' rebuke of the religious leaders back in chapter 11, his famous pronouncement of woes upon the scribes and Pharisees. That it was the Pharisees who thought highly of them, themselves in their perceived righteousness and yet were leading others to the pit of death, unmarked graves that they were, as Jesus described them. Likewise, it was the scribes who thought highly of their interpretation of the law and yet were not only misinformed themselves, but we're leading others away from a right understanding of the knowledge of God. Remember, Jesus has just presented the, the scribes with a, a riddle, going back to last week, a question provoked by the words of, of David in Psalm chapter uh, Psalm 110, I should say. And not simply a question, as Jesus presented them with it last week, as we saw, for the sake of theological exercises, Jesus knows that they've just seen him enter into the city of Jerusalem. His triumphal entry. Rather, that riddle, as we saw last week, it's a declaration on Jesus' part that he's more than the son of David. The son of God, soon to be exalted on the other side of death to the right hand of the Father. The scribes having placed their own honor above the honor of God's son. Here now, Jesus turning his attention from the scribes to his disciples, though clearly rebuking the scribes right in front of everyone. Scribes, they, they focused a great deal on the outward. They cared a great deal about appearances. Having made public recognition and self-praise the, the motivations of their religious practice. They loved the best seats in the synagogue. 
the seat facing the congregation that, that brought any person who sat in it into prominent view for everyone looking in. They loved greetings in the marketplaces, the public recognition associated with being a person of respect in the religious community. They loved themselves in contrast with love for God and neighbor, which is why Jesus told stories like the parable of the Good Samaritan. They prayed long prayers, entering into places of heightened public visibility at just the right time so everyone would see them praying. Motivated not by the desire to truly commune with God, but the desire for public recognition and and self-praise. Giving the illusion of piety with hearts all the while far from God. So far from God, Jesus says, verse 47, that they devoured widows' houses using their spiritual influence for their own selfish gain. Taking advantage of the very ones that they should have been taking care of devouring the very ones that they should have been defending. Widows, as we've talked about before in our study of the book of Luke, being among the defenseless in Jewish society, like the the orphan, the sojourner, and the, the poor, having little to no social power, oftentimes one tragedy away from starvation, oftentimes victimized by the very ones, the scribes, who should have embraced the heart of the Good Samaritan. And welcoming strangers, caring for widows and orphans, those in need. And caring about how they were perceived by others. And don't miss this. The scribes had failed to consider how they might be perceived by God. It's the scribes of whom Jesus cautions his disciples to beware, verse 45, around whom to exercise caution. Why? Why would Jesus say that? But there's a reason that the scribes and Pharisees were referred to as blind guides. Namely, that people were tempted to follow them into the same exact pit that they had entered into themselves. Right? We see it in the church today. Those with a pharisaical spirit leading others into the pit of their cold, calculated legalism. The scribes, they, they present us with the temptation to present ourselves as more spiritual than we are. And isn't that a danger for all of us, myself included? The temptation to care more about what people think than what God thinks. The temptation to seek praise and recognition among among our peers, particularly for our religious devotion. The temptation to, though perhaps not quite as explicitly as we see it in the scribes, to take advantage of the very people we should be caring for. Pride hypocrisy, greed, those things just as dangerous for us as they were for the scribes in Jesus' day. Even we who perceive ourselves to stand among the most religiously devout. Such people, Jesus says, verse 47, will receive the greater condemnation. Those who not only themselves live in, in such a way, but lead others into that same pit of death. It's sobering to consider. In contrast... Chapter 21, verse 1, Jesus looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said to his disciples, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they are all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. 
Right? Here's, here's the next in a, a long line of stark contrast that Luke presents us with, uh, following his word of caution with a word of commendation here. If you go back and you study the temple courts in Jesus' day, there were, there were 13 trumpet-like boxes uh, that were established for the collection of offerings. Each of those boxes with an inscription signifying how the contents would be designated. You had the bird offerings. You had the, the young birds for whole offerings. You had the box for frankincense. You had the box for gold for the mercy seat. Six of those 13 devoted to free will offerings. Again, keep in mind that, that all of this takes place during the busyness of, of Passover, giving opportunity for people with significant wealth to do a little bit of posturing. I mean, surely Jesus didn't have a problem with every wealthy giver that day. As we've talked about this before, that there are, there are more categories than we tend to consider as it pertains to, to wealth in the scriptures. There's, there's an unrighteous wealthy and, and a righteous wealthy. Uh, there, there's an unrighteous impoverished and a righteous, righteous uh, impoverished. There were surely some that day with right God-honoring motivations, but, but there were too surely those who... Uh, walked away with a feeling sense of safety. I've done what other people are unable to do, and therefore I'm good before God. Not to mention the, the many onlookers uh, who watched those with their big financial gifts, even those with right motivations giving, and saw them as doing more for God. A lot of confusion there. And yet we're told that the one who receives the commendation of Jesus is the poor widow. The word for poor from the, the Greek word uh, pentiros, used here only in, in Scripture, one time. It's an unusual word. Luke means to use it to highlight the unusual nature of this woman's uh, impoverished state. Again, widows were the, uh, among the defenseless in Jewish society with few ways of earn, earning money in first century Judea. Oftentimes one tragedy away from starvation. I mean, it would have been sufficient to call this woman a widow. We would have known that, that she was destitute just by saying a widow put her two coins in the, the collection box. To say that she was a poor widow, to use that un, unusual terminology that you, Luke uses, is a way of saying she was among society's most impoverished. She was at the bottom of the food chain. In fact, the, the two coins that she gave were known as lepta, which literally means in the Greek peeled or fine or thin, or small, or light. All of those translations meant to communicate something of an ins insignificance at the end of the day. Less valuable than a dirty penny in a Kroger park parking lot that most of us would walk right past. And yet Jesus' words have taken literally, they're a declaration that this woman gave more than not any one of these wealthy givers, but all of them combined. They gave out of their abundance, knowing many of them that the crowds were watching. She gave out of her poverty, knowing that God was watching. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on these verses, he says, The Bible does not tell us why this woman did this. But I think we know what she believed about God. What she had to believe about God to do this. She had to believe that God was glorious because she was giving him all her earthly treasure. She had to believe that God was gracious because she was responding with the kind of costly generosity that only grace compels. She had to believe that God was provident 
Because once she had nothing left to live on, she would have to depend on him for absolutely everything. To her everlasting credit, here was a woman who offered God unconditional faith, undying gratitude, and unrestrained praise. He goes on to say, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. By that standard, when this woman gave her two little coins, she was really putting her heart into that box, offering her whole self to God. How different she was from the scribes, he says. They were all about what was on the outside, but she was living for God on the inside so that what came out of her was really there. This is what God wants from us. Not just our money, but ourselves. From the inside all the way out. Right, we talked about that. That was kind of the thesis statement of the Sermon on the Mount series. That Jesus was, was looking to excavate and get underneath to the root of our hearts, our motivations, our drivers. That as Jesus observed the people in the temple courts that day, actions and motives, so he sees us, our actions, our motives. David's son, going back to last week, and David's Lord, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, the one to whom we will give an account. Jesus isn't impressed with what the watching world is oftentimes impressed with. And that includes empty-hearted, seemingly pious, religious activity. But Jesus is captivated by a heart that beats for God. A heart compelled by the extravagant grace of God to spend and be spent extravagantly for God's glory. In the words of one scholar, this widow was a rare flower in a desert of official devotion and her beauty made Jesus' heart rejoice. Again, remember, this is Passover week in first century Jerusalem. There's a lot of hustle and bustle of religious activity, just as there is, again, in the American South, every Lord's Day that we wake up to. A lot going on. What is Jesus impressed with? The rare flowers that pop up in that desert of official devotion. Going all the way back to Mary's Song of Praise, chapter 1, Luke's thesis statement. He, God, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary's earliest of Christmas carols declaring that, that God is with the lowly. A God who brings down the mighty from their thrones and exalts those of humble estate. We've seen it for 20 chapters now. A God who sends those with full bellies away empty and fills those who come to him hungry with good things. The poor in spirit. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary on Luke, can you not see that everything that man boasts in, his intellect, his understanding, his power, his social status, his influence, his righteousness, his morality, his ethics, his code, every one of them is utterly demolished by the Son of God. Simply put, in the words of another scholar, if we would know the riches of God's mercy, we simply need to admit the poverty of our lives. Certainly a challenge in, in this world, right? 
which props up those with fame and riches to be envied and, and emulated. It's the upside-down nature of the, the kingdom of God, which Luke has continued to, to put on display throughout this great story that he's out to tell. I'll share a quote from earlier in this series, R.T. France, and trying to sum up the book of Luke. He says, Luke's story is famous for its broad sympathy with the marginalized and the disadvantaged, the poor and the sick, the harassed and the demon-possessed, widows and bereaved parents, women and children, the social underworld of tax collectors and sinners, the Gentiles and even the Samaritans. To all in their different needs, salvation and wholeness came through the ministry of Jesus who came to proclaim good news to the poor. And Luke took delight in using their stories to illustrate the revolutionary ideals of the Magnificat, of Mary's song of praise. The dawning kingdom of God in which the last will be first and the first last. That, that Mary's song, it's the song of the gospel. A song whose lyrics have leapt off the page now for 20 chapters as we've seen them come to life in the ministry of God's Son. It's a song of ultimate triumph through seeming weakness. The great reversal. The God of Christianity, a promise-keeping God who fulfills his promises to and through the lowly. Again, it was lowly shepherds to whom the angel appeared with the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. It was a promiscuous woman who fell at Jesus' feet and cleansed them with her tears. It was a despised Samaritan whom Jesus made the, the hero of uh, his most famous of parables. It was the self-righteous Pharisee whose prayers went unheard, blinded by his own sufficiency and pride, while the sinful tax collector was justified before God in humble recognition of his desperate need for God's mercy. And here... It's the impoverished widow with no outward impressiveness who's commended while the scribes, outwardly pious yet inwardly corrupt, are condemned. The scribes exposed for the greedy, prideful hypocrites that they are, the impoverished widow for the generous, humble woman of virtue that she is. The question last week was, who do you say that he is? The son of David, the son of God? question this week is, who does he say that you are? For the Lord sees not as man sees, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So that I would ask, what does the Lord see in your heart? My heart too. Include myself in that question. As he looks past the outward piety. There's good news. And you know that if you've been around this church long enough. That God hasn't left us without hope. To use the, ver the language of verse 47. That we're not left under the great condemnation that as sinners we deserve. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, that Jesus would go on to carry a perfect record of sinless obedience to the cross, bearing our sins, and with it the condemnation that we deserve at Mount Calvary. That Jesus offers the hope of salvation to the prideful. He offers the hope of salvation to the greedy. He offers the hope of salvation to the hypocritical. He offers the hope of salvation to the outwardly pious yet inwardly corrupt. Those of us who least have the inside matching the outside. No one is, is beyond the reach of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. No one's too far gone, religiously or irreligiously. 
if we will but come to the end of ourselves, repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus for the hope of forgiveness that can only be found in him. Again, as we've seen in the promiscuous woman, in Zacchaeus, and the tax collector who went up to the temple. Perhaps today is the day of salvation for someone in this room, the day to, to repent of your sins and to trust in a sufficient Savior and worthy King, Jesus Christ. Like the impoverished widow, we can know that God is glorious as we fix our eyes on the glorious Son of David and Son of God, Jesus Christ. We can know that God is gracious as we look to the one who, like the widow, gave everything for us. Again, very famous passage of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's that kind of grace. It's that kind of grace that compels a person to spend and be spent for the glory of God. Costly grace in Jesus Christ, compelling costly generosity among we, his people, the redeemed. That if Jesus is who he says he is, he's worthy of true and real sacrifice. The kind of sacrifice that we feel when we make, like the impoverished widow. She had every reason to wonder what God could possibly do with her two measly coins. And yet, there's no telling what kind of ripple effect her act of sincere and humble generosity has had over the past 2,000 years. It's having effect right now this morning in this very room. Don't think that you have nothing to offer God. What that woman gave that day was a king's ransom in that sense. Jesus presents the listener with, a, with an incredibly sobering question. One with which we've been presented numerous times throughout Luke's gospel account. What are you doing right now with what you have? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus had said. The kingdom-minded stewardship, kingdom-minded faithfulness, kingdom-minded generosity, those things are born out of a functional trust in a sufficiently gracious and glorious Jesus. Luke presents us with a question this morning. Have we seen the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we compelled by such beauty to spend and be spent for his glory? Looking at the scribes, and the impoverished widow and the contrast there right in front of us. What will be the legacy that you and I leave? Again, this widow was a rare flower in a desert of official devotion. And her beauty made Jesus' heart rejoice. That's my prayer for our church. That individually, that we would be rare flowers in a sea of religious devotion here in the American South. And that collectively, we'd be a bouquet together. Is that how you pronounce it? That my prayer is that, that the, the beauty of, of our unconditional faith, our undying gratitude, our unrestrained praise would make Jesus' heart rejoice just as his heart rejoiced when he looked on, in on the impoverished widow that day. Acknowledging that that's only made possible as Paul says, by the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ.